0: Hi, I'm Sarah Gump from the Cedarville Stories podcast team. We decided to break this interview into two episodes because Dr. Frank Ginesta has so many good stories to share. I just heard him talking about a speech that he wrote for President George H.W. Bush. Hear this story and more on this episode of the Cedarville Stories podcast with your host, Mark Weinstein. My guest today on the Cedarville Stories podcast is Dr. Frank Ginesta, retired professor of international studies at Cedarville University a former United States diplomat. Welcome to the podcast, Frank.
1: Thank you, Mark. Delighted to be part of this.
0: Well, thank you, and uh, thanks for being part of it. And I know you have a lot of stories that we're going to uh, dive into in the next 30 minutes or so. Uh, so let's, let's start right at the beginning. Um, you have had a distinguished career in uh, higher education and, and government, but what truly drives Frank Janista to, to do what he does on a daily basis?
1: I think it's... The idea in all areas of making a difference. I think it's a, it's a basic Christian principle for Christ followers. But if you, I don't like to say leave a legacy because that sounds rather grand and won't apply to a short interaction with some individual you run into randomly, but how you treat all individuals that you run into, is there an opportunity to make a difference in their lives? Certainly in your family, Mm -hmm. are you making a difference? In your church, are you making a difference? In your association, in sports groups, or, you know, some hobby that you have, are you making a difference? Certainly in your professional career, you have duties, responsibilities, expectations. Are you making a difference in that area? So that's something that's followed me pretty much uh, all the way through up until the moment.
0: So how would you assess from a personal perspective, a professional perspective, how have you made a difference on our campus at Cedarville University during your time as a student,
1: time as a faculty member? As a student, I arrived as a shell-shocked culture warrior survivor. Uh, I grew up as a son of missionary kids in the Philippines. I changed schools 13 times in 12 years. The only time I attended the same school two years back to back was my junior and senior year in high school, which was an international boarding school in the mountains of the northern Philippines, uh, 300 or so kids, K through 12, college prep oriented, everybody knew everybody. And then my senior year, we were due to return to the United States on furlough. My parents' home church uh, was Brookdale Baptist Church in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Okay. Bloomfield Senior High School was 2,400 students in a school that was one city block, red brick, five stories mm-hmm. high. You talk about <laughs> total freakout. That was it. And uh, from there to Cedarville, because my parents were Baptist missionaries, Baptist school. And I know God has a sense of humor. (laughs) Because when I arrived at Cedarville, after those 13 changes in 12 years and the horrendous experience as a a senior, my vow on arriving at Cedarville was I am never moving in my life again. (laughs) That's it. My parents dropped me off for freshman orientation. The next time I saw them was graduation. The next time I talked to them was graduation because at the time, international phone calls were so expensive that unless somebody died, you didn't make a phone call. But coming in as a shy, uncertain freshman, Cedarville was a perfect place. and God knew that. I had two roommates from Columbus. And on long weekends, we could get to their houses. And pretty soon, I had two adopted American families. Professors at Cedarville went out of their way, uh, especially once I discovered that, you know what? I really like the classroom. And I love the idea of learning something new every day of my life. And I could see myself as a professor. I had no idea when I arrived about major. But then I learned my considerable surprise and pleasure that there was a field of study called Asian studies. Okay. So when I looked at my background and said, what do I bring to these various majors? It was mostly uh, nothing much, but Asian studies, I grew up in Asia. I speak languages. I'm comfortable in the culture. This is a winner. Um, we had nobody on faculty who had any background in Asian studies. But our hotshot young professor, Dr. Murdoch, <laughs> and uh, Professor Alan Monroe were mentors. Came alongside, uh, knew about my situation, concerned about my situation. They said, "Frank, this makes all the sense in the world. Let's do this." So, if you actually look at my transcript, it's loaded with made-up courses, you know, readings, seminars, et cetera, which principally those two professors, made up, didn't get any more money for the extra effort they put in. But by the time I got to my master's program in Asian history at University of Dayton, I was as well prepared as people who came out of full-blown Asian studies programs. So Cedarville was formative. I mean, two of those freshman roommates are still friends today. We exchange visits back and forth. Their wives, uh, my wife, Barb, one of the huge uh, impacts at Cedarville, and I hope it's continuing, and I believe it is, are the long-term, lifelong friendships Mm -hmm. that you make here on campus. Uh, We just celebrated uh, last October the 50th—I know, this sounds horrible. (laughs) I'm not that Uh, old—50th class reunion. We had over 70 of our class back, and in three minutes, you're right back where you were. It's phenomenal. Isn't
0: that refreshing?
1: It is. One of the huge strengths of Cedarville, I think that's one of the reasons that Cedarville ranks consistently so high nationally in student satisfaction. Because I'm not the only uh, professor, and as a student, I'm not the only student who's benefiting from those close mentorships, professors who aren't just going to class and picking up their paycheck, but are really investing in the lives of the students. So by hearing that, Cedarville was the right place for you at that time. Oh, absolutely. I have no doubt in my mind. I would have had a, given my horrendous experience in uh, senior high school, my senior year, I would have had a tough time surviving on Another campus, Cedarville was exactly what I needed in terms of the small size and especially in terms of the friendly campus atmosphere and the concerned professors.
0: Uh, you moved around, you said thirteen
1: times in what twelve years. Yeah, you grew up where in the Philippines? Philippines and Hong Kong. okay, so and every f- fifth year in the United States. okay. and and you,
0: uh, from my observation of you as a, an adult, you are a typical boy. You like to get into things. You may have been a little mischievous. I don't know. But uh, your, your colleagues in the, the history and government department, Dr. Dewar and Dr. Mark Caleb Smith, um, shared a story about you finding or uncovering an um, unexploded bomb
1: or something. Is that a true story? And tell me about that. Well, growing up in the Philippines was a lot of fun. I mean, you got to ride on water buffaloes, you got to take bamboo rafts down rivers, you got to scare your mother to death by climbing these 50-foot-high coconut trees to get coconuts. I bet you did that very well. (laughs) I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) And there was huge fighting during World War II in the Philippines. Uh, Filipino guerrillas had one of the most outstanding reputations of anybody Uh, any guerrilla force, any resistance force during World War II for their efforts, in this case, against the Japanese. And there was a lot of fighting during the liberation of the Philippines. So I had great fun exploring these old battlefields, going into old Japanese caves, Mm -hmm. seeing what I could find, et cetera. And uh, there were half-filled in trenches and foxholes, which we would excavate because often you'd find... um, Bullets, shell casings, etc. Wow. And in one of them, we heard a little clink, and when we ex- excavated around it, we found this American grenade. What did you do with it? Well, I was about 12 years old, so I knew exactly what safety procedures to take. Uh, first of all, we picked it up, and we placed it on the ground. The pin was still in. Uh, it was all corroded. We kind of had our doubts it would go off. So we tied a good strong string to it, put a couple rocks in front of it so it couldn't move toward us, and went behind a big mango tree and yanked on the string. And the string came loose. We're counting. thousand one, thousand two. we got 1,005. and Ah, yeah, it's a dud. And we step out from behind the mango tree and boom. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It goes off. Guardian angels working overtime. None of the fragments hit us. Uh, We never told our folks about that. That was my next question. (laughs) Oh, no. Never. We're smart kids. (laughs) You never
0: told them, even in your adult years?
1: I might have later. Okay. Well into my adult years.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. Fortunately, you weren't, weren't injured. Was that probably the craziest thing you've ever done?
1: Yeah, probably. I mean, I've been known to jump out of perfectly good airplanes and scuba dive with sharks and stuff like that, but that's all sort of carefully planned, risky stuff.
0: You're an adventurous type of guy. Um, At the top of the podcast, I mentioned that you were a former U.S. diplomat. When did you first think you wanted to go in that area of discipline?
1: I left Cedarville thinking I would love to be a professor of Asian studies, talking about a place that was so formative in my life. Sure. So I went from here to University of Dayton for my master's, And then I uh, did my Ph.D. work at that school up north. I understand it's referred to in Ohio. Oh, the
0: University of Michigan.
1: Yes. Okay. Go blue. Uh, Has a very strong Asian studies program. Okay. And after my first year there, my principal professor said, uh, I'm going on sabbatical and I'm the only one that teaches the courses that you need. But you know what you're going to be doing your research on. And I understand that your alma mater in the Philippines is interested in starting an Asian studies program. Why don't we kind of flip this, go to the Philippines now, teach, do your research during vacation periods, and then come on back to Michigan, finish up your coursework. And so that's what we did. I took my wife, Barb, to, who had never been west of the Mississippi, to the Philippines. And uh, it was while I was there, that I ran into a couple of guys from the U.S. Embassy. And I said, oh, cool. So what does a diplomat do? We talked for an hour, and I refer to that as my light bulb moment. You know, in the cartoon, somebody gets a good idea, there's a big light bulb sure. above their head. Sure, That was my light bulb moment. And so I pursued it from then on. I took the uh, exam, the, what we call the Foreign Service Officer exam, and uh, pretty soon was uh, sworn in as uh, a U.S. diplomat. What does a
0: U.S. or what did you do as a U.S. diplomat? What, what is a typical job in that aspect?
1: There isn't really a typical job. I mean, the bottom line is that you are a representative of the United States of America abroad. Okay, Tremendous honor, a privilege. It's also a very significant responsibility. Uh, to put it in the Christian context, 2 Corinthians 5.20 calls us to be ambassadors for Christ. Mm -hmm. If you are an ambassador, if you are a diplomat, a representative, you are supposed to embody what is best about the country uh, that you are representing. Uh, If we are ambassadors of the King of Kings, shouldn't we be doing an awful lot better at maintaining our responsibility, our sense of duty Am I a good ambassador? Am I accurately reflecting what I should be reflecting as an ambassador to the King of Kings? Obviously that's a lot more important than being a representative of the United States of America. The job responsibilities range very very widely within an embassy. Because of my academic background I chose to focus principally on what we call public diplomacy. Uh, The ambassador at any embassy is usually engaged with the president, the top political economic leaders of the country. Other elements of the embassy, for example, the political section is getting to know the politicians and what their attitudes are toward the United States. And so let's say there's an election coming up, they're going to be reporting back to Washington. If party A gets in, this is likely to be the relationship with the United States. Party B tends to be very skeptical of America, so if they get in, we can expect these changes in our relationship. The economic section in, uh, in charge of getting to know the financial movers and shakers in the country and get a feel for how the economy is going and where the United States might usefully uh, fit into, for example, a trading relationship. Public diplomacy I really like because you're engaged with the more normal people you're conducting seminars on university campuses. You are sending uh, people from that country on scholarship to study in the United States. And to come back, you're bringing American Fulbrighters to teach on local campuses as a visiting American specialist in American literature or climate science or uh, whatever it may be. The cultural dimension I've arranged for the showing of multiple smithsonian exhibitions in the national museums or national cultural centers of countries where i've been as a way of helping people to get a feel for what is this place called the united states uh, of america public diplomacy also uh... is involved with the media uh, several times i've been the embassy spokesperson so it's my responsibility to say what should be said and not say what shouldn't be said um, and to try to keep uh, the local print, radio, television uh, up-to-date on what U.S. policy is when they have a particular concern. So that's kind of the broad picture.
0: Let's move into your, yours in diplomacy. You worked at the embassies in Japan, Indonesia, New Zealand— South Africa, and you had two stints in the Philippines. Um, what was your favorite embassy to work in or and roles that you did at those embassies?
1: Uh, Tokyo was my first assignment, and it's a very bad assignment for a bright young junior officer because it's a huge embassy, and you are the lowest man on a very high totem pole. So anything that's interesting to do never filters down to the lowest man on the totem pole. You get to do stuff like meet the incoming VIP at the airport at 2 a.m. on Sunday morning. Now, I did meet some very, very interesting people. Uh, Buckminster Fuller, a great scientist and inventor, was coming to to Japan to get an award from the Japan Academy of Sciences. Um, Met him at the airport, whisked him through with my diplomatic pass, whisked him through customs, got into the uh, embassy vehicle, Started off for his hotel, made the mistake of asking, So, how are you feeling? Uh, how's the jet lag? And he looked at me and said, Young man, there is no such thing as jet lag. So, suitably abashed, I quickly changed the subject and was immensely rewarded when that evening at the award dinner, he fell dead asleep at the, during the soup course.
0: <laughs> so, obviously, there is jet lag. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, in your role, you did various things. One of the things that you you did in in your work was write speeches for important people. I understand you wrote a speech for President George H.W. Bush. Do you recall what that speech was
1: about? Sure. Um, I was then at uh, the U.S. Embassy in Montevideo, Uruguay in South uh, America. And President Bush was on a uh, swing through several countries, uh, Brazil, Uruguay, Argentina, Chile, as I recalled. And so, obviously, a huge amount of planning that, uh, that goes into this. The amount of logistics that goes into a presidential visit would, would blow your mind. Um, they fly in his armored limousines in, uh, in U.S. Air Force cargo planes. Uh, there's, a, there's an advance team that's on the ground for at least two weeks before the visit. Security is incredible. In this case, um, it was right around the end of the Soviet Union and the world was looking very good. The Cold War was ending and we were looking toward improving relations across South America. There was under discussion a free trade area of the Americas. Uh, So from Hudson Bay to Tierra del Fuego, the idea was open it up and have free trade, sort of like an EU equivalent. And so my job was to sketch all that out and then to put in some Uruguay-specific references, stories, et cetera. Now, it may be a bit much to say I wrote the speech. I wrote a speech that I handed to the presidential speechwriters Okay. because they are very jealous about this, and they don't want anything to go out unless it's gone through them. Sure. I also had opportunities uh, later when I was in the Philippines to write a speech for uh, President Clinton when he visited the Philippines. And one of the more moving experiences, World War II was such a critical, formative, tragic experience for Filipinos. Hundreds of thousands of them were killed by the Japanese. Um, The whole country was in dire poverty the figure of douglas macarthur is huge during the initial uh... resistance philippines and filipinos and americans held out far longer than uh... people in other countries to the initial japanese invasion but it looked like things were collapsing and so president roosevelt ordered uh, MacArthur to leave the philippines he didn't want him captured by the japanese uh, MacArthur left with great reluctance, but on his arrival in Australia, said, "I have come through, and I shall return," and that became the "I shall return," uh, became the phrase for the rest of the war. When we, when the United States would smuggle in arms, medicine, etc., to the uh, Filipino guerrillas, everything would be labeled "I shall return," you know even cigarettes or matches or other things like that. I shall return. So when he returned in October 44, this was a huge moment. It's on the radio and says, people of the Philippines, I have returned. Rally to me, rise and strike. When I was growing up, there were all kinds of kids uh, my age or a little bit older named Douglas or named MacArthur. Well, I was the lead person in the embassy for the 50th commemoration of MacArthur's return. We had full support from the U.S. Department of Defense. Army types were a little bit annoyed that in the reenactment it was Marines who came ashore when actually MacArthur had come ashore with the Army. But nevertheless, this was all on national television. The United States was represented by Chairman of the Joint Chief, Shalikashvili. I wrote uh, his speech for that. But liberation of the Philippines did not happen that one month of October. It continued for the next 11 months until Japan surrendered. So for 11 months, towns and cities all over the Philippines wanted to have their own events. So I was writing, and the ambassador, of course, had to go and be there. And so I was writing all of these speeches. I even wrote several speeches for President Ramos of the Philippines. Oh, really? Well, for his material for His speechwriters to put into his speech would be a better way of saying it. I had a copy of the U.S. Army history of liberation of the Philippines, so by the end of that year, I probably knew more about the liberation of the Philippines than almost anybody uh, on the planet. But it was such a rewarding experience. Um, Many cases, American veterans uh, of liberation returned, but always there were Filipino veterans who had fought alongside us uh, during the war. We even had at the commemoration event in, on the island of Leyte, on the same beach where MacArthur uh, came ashore, we had uh, an American actor decked out like MacArthur with the hat and the dark glasses and everything and a jeep on the shore. And he comes ashore in a, in a landing craft, not quite as dignified as MacArthur Because they hadn't had time to prepare, so he was expecting the water to be shallower than it was. Oh. And on national television, he (laughs) fell over and got wet to the waist. (laughs) (laughs) It took a little of the solemnity (laughs) out of the occasion, as you can imagine. Sure. But I probably wrote over 50 speeches for Ambassador Negroponte.
0: So as a speechwriter, writing the speech for President Bush, President Clinton, and others, as Were you able to meet these people?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's in most cases, it's uh, rather quick. I mean, I wasn't in grand conversation with them. I would have conversations with speechwriters and uh, go over their suggestions, um, trying to be alert for what seemed like an innocent expression or use of a word by an American but had special meaning, especially maybe special negative meaning. In the Philippine context, so I was able to sort of be a cultural interpreter, yeah, and and wave them away from the landmines that they might have inadvertently mm-hmm. uh, put into the speech.
0: As a diplomat, uh,
1: twenty five years,
0: and now you you know you just finished a, a nice tenure here at Cedarville as a faculty member. Do you ever think back to your your years back there as a diplomat, like, wow, the Lord used me a student from Cedarville University, a missionary kid, for such grand opportunities. What do you think when you think back to
1: how the Lord used you? Mm-hmm. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Mm. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths or make your path straight. It's a, it's a path I could never have predicted in a million years. What a blessing to to be part of that, and uh, I, I, I thank you for your
0: service, uh, and um, I'm just honored to spend a little bit of time with you here at Cedarville University. Really, you're you're a treasure, you're American treasure, you're a Cedarville treasure. So thank you for sharing all that.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, being a diplomat does have a significant landmine or potential trap, and that is the tendency of those of us in the diplomatic corps to violate the biblical warning about thinking of oneself more highly than one ought. Sure. And I always try to keep that in mind. Frank, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. And for our
0: listeners, join me next week as we hear the rest of the story from Frank Chinista. Thank you for listening to the Cedarville Stories podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. You are encouraged to share, like, and review this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another Cedarville story for God's glory.